Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. We are working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and the passage we're looking at today is printed in your bulletin. If you want to open there, flip in your Bible, or it'll be on the screen in front of you. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. We know that the grass will wither and the flower fades, but the Word of God will stand forever. So hear now God's Word. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, With some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of Jesus' disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. There are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Jesus responded, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God And you hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother whatever you would have gained from me as Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And then he called all the people to him again, and he said, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And Jesus said, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus Jesus declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, Coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, to say that this is a heavy passage would be a gross understatement. We know that in Romans 3, Paul said that the law is meant to silence every mouth for your perfect law that is meant to reflect your heart of love functions like a mirror. It shows us all the blemishes, all the stains, all the ways that we are unclean at a deep heart level. 
and to hear you tell the leaders of the church and then all the people that followed them that they were teaching things completely out of accord with your word to such a degree that you actually called them sons of hell. Oh, please protect us from being so naive and foolish and arrogant to think that this could not be true of us. So we pray for your piercing Holy Spirit to come, send forth your word, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe what's true. And more than anything, Lord Jesus, the only righteous one, our Savior, I pray that you will be beautiful and that you will draw our hearts to you. In Christ's name, amen. So as we continue our sermon series on the Gospel of Mark last week, we looked at a passage where Jesus' disciples were completely exhausted and most likely fully expecting a, a Sabbath rest or vacation of some sort. And instead, Jesus sends them out to do a frustrating and tedious process of rowing across the sea. And then he walks out on the water to them. And the point we made was that the overwhelming danger of the Christian life is to become prideful. And that pride begins to grow the longer you walk with God, especially if you find yourself in a position of leadership and God is using you to impact others. You can slowly but surely start to think, I'm maturing, therefore I'm more independent, and I don't really need to depend on God that much. I mean, of course, you would never say that. The disciples would have never said that. So what Jesus did consistently was put his disciples in a position to be reminded of their inadequacy, or in other words, to be reminded of their need of grace. As Paul Tripp in his new devotional Sunday Matters says, grace doesn't lead us from dependence to independence, but rather from independence to a deeper and deeper dependence on God. The way of the Christian life from beginning to end is one of downward trajectory God opposes the proud and gives his grace to the humble. And we see that Jesus really, really wanted to make sure his disciples, who were going to be leaders in the early church, understood this because he understood the, the power and influence and authority that teachers in the church have. And that is why in this passage he is so unbelievably angry. If you've ever read the Bible at all, especially the Gospels, you had to have been shocked when you read this story. Jesus, humble and kind, gentle and lowly in heart, the wonderful counselor who is so tender, especially with people that are broken and beaten down and are outcast. Here, when he is asked the question, hey, why don't your disciples follow the tradition? doesn't say, oh, well, let me explain it to you. You've heard it said, but you misunderstand. And let's have a nice little, you know, seminary lesson. He goes, you guys are nothing but a bunch of freaking hypocrites. I mean, to say that this would have been like a, Hulk Hogan dropkick to the face is an understatement of understatements. And so one of the things we need to acknowledge before we jump into what was going on here with the so-called tradition of the elders is why was Jesus so angry? Remember, anger is always a reflection of something that we love being threatened. And so, of course, Tim Keller says it better than I ever could in his book, Forgive. He says, when we get angry, it's usually because the things we love most are threatened but because of sin, often those ultimate loves include our public image, our ego, or some cherished plan that we think will finally deliver life satisfaction. When these things are threatened, we get angry, and we often harm people and destroy things. When we see the reference to God's wrath or anger in the Bible, we instinctively imagine God's anger is like ours. 
and so we recoil. However, God's anger is not wounded pride as ours is. God only gets angry at the evil, destroying the things he loves. His creation and the human race he made for his own glory and for our happiness. And that is why Jesus is so furiously angry, righteously so, in our text. The Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law were meant to be the ones that were most aware of God's grace and mercy. They were to be the most humble. They should have been the ones most aware as they taught and sought to lead God's people in a posture of obedience. But instead, Jesus says, they began to teach cultural rules that not only were out of accord with Scripture, but actually led to the opposite of what God's word and God's law intended they would bind people's consciences with rules that had nothing to do with the heart of God. Jesus, his brother James in James 3 says, Not many of you should become teachers, for you know that you who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Anytime you read that, please pray for all the pastors. Please pray. That, that verse terrifies me, hopefully, rightfully. And so Jesus here, when they, you know, ask a question that was very confusing to them. Hey, why don't your disciples follow the tradition of the elders? And notice that they don't say we're confused. They are so ingrained in their belief of hand washing and what it does in relationship to God that they say your disciples are defiled. They don't just say they don't do this. They say they're defiled, unclean. Our translation would be they're sinful. They're living in sin by not doing this thing. And then Jesus quotes a passage that they would have been familiar with from Isaiah 29 he says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. In vain do they worship you, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Every point of that prophecy would have been just like another gut punch to these guys who really, truly, and genuinely thought we honor God, we love God, our hearts are close to God, we worship him in spirit and in truth, and we only always inevitably teach the word of God. And Jesus says, you're blind guides. You are completely unaware because of how much you've gotten wrapped up in what was known as the tradition of the elders. Now, one of the things we need to do to ho hopefully help protect our heart from just saying, what a bunch of freaking idiots, I would never do that, is remember, they didn't start out by saying our goal in all of our study and learning of the Old Testament is to become hypocrites that Jesus condemns, right? This is the first thing I tell every couple I meet with for premarital counseling, right? I'm like, you know, tell me some of your story. Let's get to know. And sadly, you know, the, the day and age in which we live and because sin is real, it's rare that I ever hear stories that there's not divorce and, and kind of brokenness on both sides. And one of the things I'll say is, you need to understand that no one who has gone through a divorce or some type of really painful, hard, relational, you know, situation ever said, that's my goal. What's the point? That could easily be you. And I don't say that to, like, terrify them, and I do say it to terrify them. Because overwhelmingly, especially I feel like when you grow up in the church, you think, oh, I'm going to have a great marriage. That's what I thought. When Stephanie and I went to premarital counseling, I was like, anyone who has a bad marriage, anyone who gets divorced, anyone who struggles, um, they're just either dumb or lazy. I'm ashamed to say that's true. A couple years into marriage, I'm like, boy, anyone who stays married needs to thank God for his grace. I'm, I'm serious. That's not a joke. And the fact that Stephanie stayed married to me is an unbelievable testimony of grace. I love, Will, that you couldn't stop crying. It took a lot of self-restraint for me not to just preach a sermon on 
the power of men shedding their tears in light of how emotionally unhealthy we are as a culture. Jesus was a man of sorrows who wept all the time uncontrollably. Anyway, I'm, I'm not going to go off on that. The, the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law never set out to become hypocrites and sons of hell. Overwhelmingly, God's people were in this position where the Romans um, were, were subjugating them because they had not been obedient to God's word. They had not obeyed his commands. And so God's people had said, hey, here's God's commands and law, and, and we need to make sure that we keep them. So let's add some extra kind of protection and borders and rules around it to make sure we're obedient. That was their desire and starting point. Okay, before we think we never do this, I grew up in a church tradition that said, oh, the Bible says in Ephesians 4, you don't need to be drunk with wine. You should be filled with the Holy Spirit. Drunkenness is bad. Therefore, drinking alcohol is sin. Let's just forbid drinking alcohol. Okay, the Bible doesn't say that. It actually says you can give thanks as you drink wine. It may be a wisdom issue for you based on your story and family and whatever else, whether you should drink or not. But that's an easy example of how we'll just wholesale take that and say, well, if it's bad to get drunk, let's just say that it's a sin to drink at all. That's an example of a tradition of our culture, so to speak, that's not remotely found in the Bible. And there's things like that that we will do on a regular basis. The Bible says, 2 Corinthians 6.14 is one of the clearest examples of this, that a Christian should not marry a, a non-Christian. It says you shouldn't be unequally yoked to someone else. This reflects the good wisdom of God. If you belong to Jesus, that meant that you are his disciple and you are to follow him in obedience. If someone doesn't belong to him, they're not following him. The goal of marriage is intimacy, not distance. It makes sense that our loving and wise God would say, this is a bad setup for you. So what we can do in the church is say, well, if it's not good and it's wrong for us to marry someone who's not a believer, you can't date a non-Christian. But the Bible doesn't say that, right? That may be a wisdom issue, but it doesn't say that, okay? The Bible doesn't say that you have to close your eyes when you pray. The Bible doesn't say you have to pray before meals. It does say give thanks in all circumstances. Don't throw stones at me. The Bible doesn't say that you have to read the Bible every day. Overwhelmingly, for thousands of years, our brothers and sisters didn't even have Bibles to read every day. When I first came to Hope, and I was an intern, um, my heart was so legalistic and bound up in rules. I was talking with Mark Upton, who was my mentor, and he was asking me about my prayer life. And one of the things that came out um, was that I'd often feel guilty praying if I miss my morning devotion. Now, the heart behind a morning daily quiet time is a good thing if it is to remind me of my belovedness, that God's favor rests on me as his child because of the finished work of Jesus. But it had gotten so twisted in my mind that if I miss my daily Bible time, I'd almost feel guilty praying or if things went bad throughout the day, I'd, I'd almost think God was mad at me. So Mark said, you need to repent of reading your Bible so much. Reading your Bible is making you a Pharisee. He's not anti-reading the Bible. We're not throwing the Bible out. Don't get me wrong. But I had taken a good thing with a good intention and sinfully twisted it and misinterpreted it in a way that was not healthy whatsoever. Now, here's a much sadder example. You know, I grew up in the deep, deep south in the Bible Belt. My granddad was a survivor of the Depression, World War II, um, 101st Airborne, all the stuff. Deacon in our church for almost 60 years. He called me. It was maybe 
12 years ago, somewhere around then, and said um, he had four daughters, 16 grandkids, I think. I got a bunch of cousins. We would gather together for Thanksgiving every year. So he called me because he was disappointed in the religious state of our family. He's like, Matt, I need you when you come to like, you know, talk to your cousins and brothers and sisters. They're not going to church and you need to talk to them. Well, actually before that, he said, I want to make sure that you're still preaching the Bible and I don't like what's happening in the culture and people aren't preaching the Bible. I was like, got it, granddad, we're good. And so then he's like, all right, I need you basically to go on this evangelism mission to the whole family. I'm like, well, that's not really the goal for, you know, Christmas. And my self-righteous pride has actually made my family not want to go to church, which is another long story. So after we're doing all this talking and catching up, he goes, hey, um, how's your friend Murph doing? Murph was my best friend at the Citadel. He was our starting fullback and team captain. If you ever seen the movie Friday, he was like Debo. I mean, he was a monster and he was an all-American wrestler. He would grab me all the time and like put me in a pretzel, make me say daddy to like give in. I, I could never, ever... <laughs> Could never do anything about it. And he was like a part of our family. He would come home with us for Christmas and send my mom Mother's Day cards. And my granddad loved Murph. He said, how's he doing? Oh, great. Just finished his master's degree. He's doing this job. Actually, he just had his first child. My granddad pauses, and Murph was a black guy. And he goes, did he marry a white girl? I said, yeah. This is her name. She's great. She's amazing. He goes, that just ain't right. That ain't the way things are supposed to be done. I said, well, granddaddy, where does it say that in the Bible? And he said, don't you start in on me now. That's just how things are, ain't how things are done around here, right? And he wasn't alone in believing that, right? Like culturally, that, that's exactly, sadly, heartbreakingly what he had been taught. So then I said, well, granddaddy, do you like chow? And don't laugh when I say this part. In the first service, people laughed and someone came up to me and said, you got to make sure people don't laugh when you say that. It's so heartbreaking. But I said, do you like Chow? That's my older brother's wife. He goes, oh, yeah, Chow, great. Hard worker, love her. Well, she's Vietnamese. That, that's an interracial marriage. My point there isn't to, like, throw dirt on my granddad, right, but to say we all develop culturally these rules that have nothing to do with God's word. And they create these situations where we sinfully, wrongfully, hypocritically say we're in a better position relationally with God than they are because those people don't do these things that we have decided and determined are right. And overwhelmingly, they have nothing to do with the Bible. In this particular passage, Jesus says, you know, this whole notion of how you wash your hands and in it is like so far from God's intent. The only time in the Old Testament God commanded hand washing was in Exodus 30. And he said when the priest goes into the temple to offer a sacrifice, he needs to make sure he washes his hands. And he's meant to do this in a ceremonial way. Why? Because the priest represented um, the people to God. And so as he goes in to offer a sacrifice, which is meant to be a reminder of their sins and their need of the cleansing blood of the Savior to come, the priest needs to make sure he doesn't forget that he needs cleansing too. If you were here two years ago when we preached the book of Hebrews, that's kind of like the whole summary of Hebrews. The danger of thinking that you don't need the same cleansing as everybody else. That was why God initially established that command. Make sure the priest washed their hands in a ceremonial way. So what did the elders do? The elders said, oh, if this is good one time for the priest to do in a sacrificial setting, then we should mandate this form of hand washing all the time. And then they just continued to add on it. Not only do we wash our hands before we eat, but then we wash everything. And you could literally translate, they would even baptize their couches. And the point, 
the entire point, which is still the point today when we gather for worship, is all the things that we do is meant to point to our heart need for the cleansing blood of Jesus. And instead, they had twisted it so far to say Jesus were confused, not because your disciples don't wash hands, but because they're defiled. They're sinful and not doing something that has nothing to do with your word. And then he goes on and he says, Moses commanded it that you should take care of your father and your mother. You should honor and care for your family, but you want to create a loophole that says if my family has needs, I've dedicated these financial resources to God, it's Corbin, so I can't even help them. And he's like, all you're doing and all of this religious performance is being a hypocrite. Now, this isn't one of these random times I have to define like what the Greek or Hebrew term is. And we get hypocrite. We use that term a lot, sadly for others and not often for ourselves. But the actual Greek origin of, of the term hypocrite was when they would go to a play or a theater, the actors on the stage wouldn't like um, dress up and do their makeup and stuff on their face. They would literally wear a mask. And they would literally wear a mask so you wouldn't know who the actual actor was. You would see that picture of them, and that's the term hypocrite. Oh, they're being a hypocrite because they're wearing a mask. A lot of times we'll say when you come in and we do the kind of welcome and announcements, hey, welcome to hope, real people, real Jesus, real change. Here's our quick little 60-second tagline if it's helpful. And one of the things we'll say on a regular basis is we have to remember the church is not a costume party. The church is a hospital for sinners. It's not a costume party where we show up and we pretend. We think if I just perform well enough, if I just project a certain image, and I believe overwhelmingly that's why God brought us to hope. When Stephanie and I got married in the summer of 2006, I was working as a high school football coach, and that's all I wanted to do the rest of my life. I had been taking seminary classes because I was excited to learn a lot of head knowledge. I got a call, you have to come to Charlotte to finish your degree, you gotta do a two-year internship, so the very first week, kind of out of niceness and hospitality, some friends of Stephanie's from Clemson said, hey, come with us to Hope. It's a church plant, meets in a gym. They tell us the night before at dinner, very casual, very laid back. And my friend goes, don't wear a suit. And I'm like, any self-respecting Christian wears a suit. So I show up at the YWCA in my suit and my bow tie, only one there in a suit and a bow tie and on time. Service is super discombobulated. I mean, it's like I'd never been to church in a gym. The whole thing was I was like, man, what, this thing is just so messy. It's just not what I'd ever expected. Literally 30 minutes into the service, I lean over to Stephanie, and I'm like, this isn't a real church. Your friends are not real Christians. And I, I wasn't joking. I was wanting to kind of go ahead and give her a heads up. We will never be coming back. And then Mark Upton got up. I'll never forget it. He got up and he was preaching on Genesis 38, the story of Judah and Tamar. Well, if you're familiar with that story, you know, Judah gets his daughter-in-law pregnant. He was drunk, didn't even remember he did it. He hears a story in town. Your daughter-in-law is pregnant. He says, bring her out and stone her to death. This is not acceptable. Then he finds out, oh gosh, I did it. And then he makes this declaration, which is at the heart of Christianity. She is more righteous than I am. In other words, I need a righteousness I can't produce on my own. And Mark Upton, I'll never forget, he starts sharing about how if you don't understand this and you don't understand the gospel, and so he started talking about his sin in need of God's grace, not in the past tense, not like 12 years ago, I struggled with alcohol and God set me free and I've dominated life. He was talking about ways he had sinned against his wife the day before. And I remember in, a, in like a five-minute window, I went from thinking, not a real church, not real Christians to, I don't know if I'm a Christian. 
Of course, I didn't have the categories for it yet, but my entire life was built on, let me put on a mask. Let me put on this church mask, this theology mask, this I'm going to be a football coach and, and help these poor kids in public schools because this is my mask that will make me acceptable to Stephanie, to God, to others. And, and I was terrified and attracted at the same time. Like, how is that possible? And that's one of the reasons I think Jesus brought me here is to say, hey, we, we got to teach you how to take off that mask and, and learn how to actually accept the love of God for the first time. Jesus' anger and fury is because even though it may have started with good intentions to begin with, these desires of trying to build extra rules around God's law had gotten so corrupt that in Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. And why is that the case? Well, Jesus goes on to say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside your heart is still full of greed and self-indulgence. It's the very same thing he's saying in this passage today. He's saying all the behavior modification in the world can never change the human heart. That's a quote from Roger Edwards. If I ever say things and you're thinking, that sounds kind of too smart and I don't get a chance to reference it, I'm not trying to plagiarize. I'm just either Tim Keller, Paul Tripp, Roger Edwards. I've got a whole list of people in case don't turn me in for plagiarizing. Roger says, there's no amount of behavior modification in the world that can ever change the human heart. And in Jeremiah, the prophet said, though you wash yourself with lye and you use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. How can you say, I am not unclean? Paul Tripp again says, sin is not just a matter of bad behavior. It's a condition of the heart. And that is why you cannot free yourself from it. Listen, if you want to know the summary of every religion in the entire world except for Christianity, it's this. The thought process of, I know that there's something unclean about me. Therefore, I must clean myself up, obey, do some duty with the hopes of being accepted or cleaning myself. Okay? And if you came in here today thinking that's what Christianity teaches, I have unbelievably good news for you. Christianity teaches that just like Jeremiah said, no matter how much you wash yourself, no matter how much you go through religious motions, you can never, ever, ever change your sinful heart. And that's why in the fullness of time, Jesus, the Son of God, was born of a woman under the law to fulfill every aspect of God's law on our behalf so that by faith alone, through his grace, we can have our sins cleansed because of his shed blood on the cross and therefore, the formula for Christianity is because I'm accepted, now I obey. We just finished singing it. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. I can say these things and it can sound simple. Hopefully it makes sense. But it is unbelievably hard for us to do. You know, anytime we 
you know, wanting to go spend time with someone that matters to us. Think about the first time that, you know, you go on a date with someone, or hopefully every time you go on a date, I guess. What do you do? You take a shower. You shave, you put on deodorant and brush your teeth and clone, perfume, whatever, maybe clean your car, right? What are you doing? You're trying to clean yourself up. Why? Because you want to be accepted. You don't want to be rejected. It's understandable why we think if I don't do something to clean myself up, I can't be accepted. But Jesus says, hey, you can lay all of this deadly doing down and receive what I have already done for you. And so, so the question we need to ask ourselves is, are there ways in my life that I'm still, you know, in, in verse 17, Jesus gives those examples. He goes, and many such things you do, right? It's like, think about if Mike Tyson is just crushing someone on the ropes and you're thinking, you know, that they should call it. And then it's like, boom, here's the knockout uppercut. Many such things you do. These aren't the only two examples. Your religious life is dominated by things that you think are going to make you clean and acceptable to God that have nothing to do with the good news of the gospel. As a result, inevitably, you're a hypocrite who judges and condemns instead of loves and cares for others. The question we have to ask ourselves in light of this warning is where is this showing up in my life? And I told you, it would be so easy for me, you know, even talking to my granddad on the phone, and the reality is I, I was so like, prideful and self-righteous, he doesn't understand grace. But you want to talk about a deadly heart condition when you were prideful towards others about your understanding of grace and not theirs. That is one of the sickest heart postures you can ever have. And I'm, I'm not saying that as a joke, right? What is grace by definition? An unmerited gift that you can't earn. The opposite of what you deserve. Mercy is God not giving us the thing, the punishment we deserve. When you are proud and judgmental and I thought I'm so much better than my granddad because he doesn't understand grace and mercy. He's legalistic. He's a Pharisee. And just to wrap that story up, before he died, um, he actually repented. One of the things God used is Tim Keller's book, Prodigal Guide. It is one of the best summaries of the Christian faith I've ever read. And I had a chance to sit with him in the hospital and talk to him about the difference in grace versus works. And I'm so unbelievably thankful. But, you know, before that happened, when I still considered him a Pharisee and kind of a judgmental, self-righteous racist, my little brother went to rehab. He had been a drug addict for over 20 years since my dad died. Out of anybody in the family, he and I had the worst relationship. Shocker because of how self-righteous and prideful I can be. Well, when he got out of rehab, his counselor called me and said, I don't really think it kind of took. I don't think he's bottomed out and kind of owned step one. He should stay. But my brother was like, I don't want to stay. Please don't make me stay. Can I come live with y'all? And I was like, heck no, this is a terrible idea. Mainly because almost like the Corbin thing here, I was thinking this is an overwhelming inconvenience to all the things God wants me to do. Like how bad is that? That my own brother that I grew up with was in need of mercy. And what I did in my heart was think, He's not deserving of mercy. He hasn't bottomed out. He's not thankful. He's not grateful. Stephanie was like, hey, we need to love on him. And I can't wrap it up with a bow. It did not go well. It was a train wreck. And the main thing that didn't go well was how angry I was at him constantly. But you know who was willing to enter in? Who would call me and say if he needs more money, if he needs more financial resources? My granddad. The one who I always considered a miser because he grew up in the Depression. The whole Depression era generation didn't want to spend money. I always looked at him like he's a miser. But he was overwhelmingly willing with anybody in my family that needed financial help to give it 
when I didn't. Like I share that story to say it's just, it's so dangerous, right? When Paul says in Romans 7, I find this law to be at work within me. When I want to do good, evil is right there and I keep on doing it. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We have to run back over and over and over and over again to the gospel. The gospel that brings us from death to life and the gospel that continues to grow us more and more in our need of grace. This is why in the book of Hebrews, the author explains the way we begin is the way we continue and live the Christian life. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, you could wrongly interpret that as, I need to run and be diligent and disciplined and independently show God how committed I am. But notice how you actually run the race of the Christian life. He says, you look to Jesus. You look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. You look to Jesus more than you look at your own sin and hypocrisy. You look to Jesus for he is the founder and the perfecter. That could also be translated, he is the author the one who begins and sustains our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And think about it even in light of this passage, right? The whole thing about clean and unclean, when the author says he despised the shame, what was the shame of the cross? Not only the brutal torture and pain but, but the belief that this means you're cursed by God and that they crucified him in the garbage heap outside of the city. What it literally means is that Jesus clothed himself in our unclean sin and my unclean sin and all of my hypocrisy and self-righteousness and judgmentalness and everything else so that I could be clothed in his perfect righteousness. That's why we began our service with Psalm 51 where David a king after God's own heart and a murderer and adulterer says, will you wash me and cleanse me? I would offer sacrifices, but the sacrifices that you desire are a humble and broken spirit. For to those things you do not and will not despise. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that your Holy Spirit will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves and anchor us more and more into your grace in such a way that leads to deep gratitude. Please forgive me, forgive us for all the ways that we live hypocritically, all the ways that we honor you with our mouths while our hearts are far from you, all the ways that we seek to build um, fences and borders to keep those people out of our lives. Lord, I pray that you will help us to be so amazed by your grace and your mercy that we are eager to show your love and affection to those in need. Thank you. Lord Jesus, that you are the friend of sinners. We pray it in your name. Amen.